Well, hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're back at it again, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Coastal Carolina Network. Coming to you every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, or right there on your podcast app, Consumer Choice Radio. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, coming to you from the Middle European studio, and I'm joined by David Clement, who's uh, sitting in air conditioning right there in uh, Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it? Oh, it's good. The air conditioning is much needed. Much needed. Yeah, it's been a balmy one. Um, I'm, I'm a bit late. Uh, I missed Prime Day. Um, I should have um, probably ordered a fan uh, or something, but, you know, I, that's what happens. You miss those Prime deals. That's the Prime. Prime now. Uh, you miss out on, on all those savings. Uh, so I should have gotten a nice little fan for the apartment, but missed out. I can... I can neither confirm nor deny if we spent an ungodly amount of money on Prime Day. <laughs> I kept I kept it pretty limited. It was rather slim, but um, yeah, I would say uh, the the reductions in some things. There's a lot of things I was looking at for a while. A lot of computer products, which is pretty cool. It's it's actually very interesting. I always would get computer products much cheaper in the U.S. whenever I would order, but um, yeah, it seems like competition is is really ratchet it up so you can get a lot of cheap stuff as well i don't know if the the chinese found better shipping routes maybe this belt and road initiative is doing pretty well uh yeah <laughs> so related to this david and i'm throwing you a curveball here have you heard more about um some of the hunter biden thing again i'm i'm not mentioning hunter biden and the whole thing in politics um, but the payments he was getting from the chinese company yeah, I have, I've seen a little bit of this. It's starting to make waves. Um, it just p- appears as though he was grifting off his name. Um, which, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's really going to be on Republicans to keep digging um, to uncover more of this. But the guy seems to... Um, be quite the character, as they say. So apparently, over the course of about a year and a half, um, there's a, a Chinese firm known as CF, no CEFC Energy, a huge Chinese conglomerate of uh, banking and energy. You know, it was like, I think they, I don't know how many billions of dollars a year they had, but it was a lot of money. It's like one of the big companies in China. Uh, apparently, they paid Hunter Biden five million dollars over the course of a year and a half. Um, and he got another six million, and this is all confirmed with bank statements of uh, companies tied to him. And uh, yeah, guy's got no skills in terms of um, oil consulting, as far as <laughs> as far as I know. Um, but it, this is wild because we just imagined a scenario in which Trump, you know, whatever, had some connection to Russia, and that was a huge scandal. And this doesn't seem to get as much of a focus. Granted, it's not the person himself; it's not Joe Biden. But yeah, no. this one just kind of yeah, just kind of grinded my gears a bit because it will get lost in the partisan muckery. But yeah, we we see this stuff all the time with lobbying and influence. And yeah, you know, can you introduce me to this person? You know, we this is a every country has this, but. If the Chiners, if the Chinese are paying millions of dollars to the uh, son of the former vice president, incoming president, you'd think it'd be a bigger deal. 
Yeah, you you would. You would think it, there would be more questions um, on it and more relentless questions, I think, is the, the issue here. Uh, but for whatever reason, the administration seems to have dodged it thus Jeez, far. what is this? Is this uh, Trudeau? Like, oh <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. So uh, we've got more on um, at least some social media stuff uh, coming up in the second block. We've got Will Duffield of the Cato Institute. Um, we do talk about Biden and uh, the lawsuit that was filed against him by the state of Missouri. Uh, this is relating to social media companies and how much the government can jawbone or pressure companies to remove content. Right now, there is an injunction that does not allow the Biden administration nor any agencies of the U.S. government to uh, reach out to social media companies, flag any accounts, tell them to shut things down. Um, very interesting. So we get into those details uh, with Will. But yeah, David, you've got uh, you've got the news wires. What's been uh, what's been coming across that uh, interests you for Consumer Choice this week? Well, I mean, we got to talk aspartame because that was a big one. Um, not necessarily this week per se, but Bill and I did have a piece. Um, That's our, our on, colleague Bill Vietz, yes. Yes, uh, on uh, on this, basically, the the WHO is listing aspartame as possibly carcinogenic. And it just comes, I mean, we've talked, you and I have talked about this at length before. It's exhausting at this point. Just the amount of times where they never really take into account what the dosage is to, like, to turn something possibly carcinogenic. Um, And the answer with aspartame is, like, you'd have, again, you'd have to drink, like, a case of Diet Coke a day for an extended period of time to by like one one hundredth of a percent change your risk. Um, so really nothing uh, nothing worth worrying about um, unless you are drinking a case of Diet Coke in which, I mean, you probably have other uh, issues if that's the case. Um, are you so a you diet these... soda? Are you a diet soda fella? I am, yeah. I haven't had a, uh, a full calorie Coke in probably like 10 years. Does it really um, make a difference? I'm, I'm not a soda person. Uh, I mean, drinking drinking calories is generally a, a, a bad way of getting calories. Um, if you're someone who is trying to be conscious about your uh, circumference, uh, as I am. Um, circumference. And, yeah. <laughs> Those of us who um, are, are trying to avoid uh, that problem... Um, so, yeah, I think it makes a difference. I mean, if you have a couple Diet Cokes a day, if you were to have full-calorie Cokes, I mean, that's like an extra 300 calories. Okay. Um, so okay. I, it, it can make a difference. Interesting piece. We'll link to that in the show notes uh, up there on the Financial Post and syndicated elsewhere. Uh, I know that uh, from working at the restaurants, uh, the uh, we, we used to have a little aspartame packets. Um, that people would um, put in, you know, that was uh, they would switch out the sugar packets. It would either be the Splenda uh, or be uh, I, remember, I think it was the aspartame one was blue, and uh, people would be mixing it in. And uh, it's interesting. Are, isn't that stevia? Uh, I believe that is stevia. The Splenda, I think Splenda is the company. So oh, they're okay. not an advertiser, but um, yeah, they can be <laughs> on the radio. Yeah, no, free no free ads. No free ads. No free ads. But 
you know, what do we say? No, no free ads. <laughs> None of that. Uh, yeah. So yeah. the, yeah, the carcinogenic stuff, this is obviously something that is growing this list of uh, things that could potentially, uh, possibly, perhaps be linked to maybe uh, cancer. And this list has grown by the year. Uh, we have a template in the state of California nuts, uh, Prop 65, which continues to list many products and being a large market. A lot of these things make it to your kitchen table. And uh, you know that this, um, this product contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer. Uh, will they have to slap that on every Diet Coke? No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, um, if it gets listed at uh, Prop 65 in California, it will be. So uh, who knows? That's we'll see hilarious. How. Oh, my goodness. Like, what a waste. This is the problem when they're overzealous with this, is that then everything is on the list and then nothing is meaningful. Right? If everything has a warning label on it, people just stop, care, stop caring. And it defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> Yeah, warning, warning, warning. We talked about that with the alcohol labels as well. Um, that has been discussed as an idea or even plain packaged alcohol, which uh, thanks Irish and uh, a couple other places discussing this. Uh, yeah, consumer products every single day when we need to continuously protect those consumers who are do too dumb to realize what alcohol does to you. And um, yeah, we'll see what happens with uh, aspartame and being put on the list. That was a very good piece, David, that you put together with David. Uh, Apart from that, we've got... Um, you mean I put together with Bill? Put together with Bill. Clobbly yeah, together. You, <laughs> no, you said put together with David. As if oh, I, sorry. I, I, wrote, I co-wrote it with my uh, second of many personalities. Uh, that's true. That's true. We have one of those. Uh, other thing we're looking at, we have uh, the head of the US FTC, Lena Khan, that is being questioned in Congress this week. Uh, this is the weaponization of government hearing by Representative Jim Jordan. Uh, always plenty of fodder there. Maybe some interesting clips uh, we'll be able to choose next week. Not really sure where that'll go, but uh, it'll make for some, some fun social media stuff. Uh, on the social media game, David, uh, what is, how has your Twitter experience been like since uh, Elon has come in now? Um, not, not great. Um, I mean, it's okay. It's not fundamentally different. Um, but I wouldn't say it's particularly good. I mean, and why I, have you not gotten the blue check? I don't know. I just think the whole paying, like the paying for a blue check thing. I'm, I don't know. Maybe I should. But then again, I'm just opening it up myself to, to the insult this guy pays for Twitter. Because <laughs> that's like the ultimate dunk you see. It's like anytime people are going at it on Twitter, people will be like, yeah, but you pay for Twitter. So shh. <laughs> uh yeah there's that well you know there's a, there's a whole new ecosystem of these blue checks um on the twitters um and i you know i i flirted with this i used it for i think the first month once it became available to see what it'd be like and um did i have more reach maybe i don't really know it's not yeah. really the uh, one thing i've noticed is i'm so bots were like a big thing and like that was part of the we need to get rid of the bots and i'm trying to pull up the tweet now because i had a tweet and i was like oh this got some decent action yeah it was a question about bill c18 and uh the 
the, I was essentially asking the question of someone who was in support of, of Bill C-18, and I had six retweets on it, and I was like, oh, I guess what I said was particularly exciting. And all six of the retweets are these weird bot accounts for, like, adult entertainment. <laughs> oh, I think the guy was a bit fast on the trigger. He forgot to, to switch uh, switch accounts. <laughs> like, there are different images, I, different I saw handles, that the other day. but all the same bio. Yeah, all it's the like, same. I, I saw this thing the other day accounts. where a guy was some guy made some point about something and then uh, he responded to himself that's like that's a great point Jim <laughs> so it's like he always forgot to switch oh man poor guy uh... yeah so you know it's 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 evolving the social media wars and uh, we talked a lot about Bill C-18 in Canada last week you know there's still more that's evolving there uh, Trudeau is a bit too busy as he's over in Vilnius, uh, Lithuania, the NATO summit. But uh, C-18 fallout continues. You know, we'll have a bit more on that um, probably later. And man, I, I think this is going to continue to reverberate because um, it's a big impact. And it seems a lot of um, media organizations are actually now waking up to it. So I have seen a tad more critical stuff, n- more on the execution than the entire idea itself. Because many of the media organizations obviously push this, and well, uh, yeah, they, it's. I think it's one of those moments where it's like, careful what you wish for, um, and I, the way in which it's framed on the other side is, well, we want to comply with the law, we don't want to break the law, and so to comply with the law, we will just prevent situation from occurring where we would break it and i think that that's a pretty reasonable i don't like it right the world without canadian news on google or meta's platforms which will now apparently include threads according to the heritage minister um is not particularly good for consumers or people who want to know what's going on in the world um but if that's the corner they're pushed into to not break the law it's like well there have only been thousands of people telling you this was going to happen since the moment this was proposed. Policies have consequences, and we're living through that right now. And uh, thankfully, we've been able to report on that. Uh, and you've been able to hear about it on the radio and on the podcast version, but you haven't been able to read it. More on that. Uh, going to go to segment two with Will Duffield of the Cato Institute talking about this Biden lawsuit and whether the government should be stopped from trying to harangue social media companies. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. I told you there'd be some great content here in the second block, and that's indeed what we're giving you. We're speaking with Mr. Will Duffield. He is policy analyst at the Cato Institute. We've had him on the program before. He's now a bona fide friend of the show. And uh, there was a super, we, ha- we had a, a, a court ruling that just came out. And um, basically, I had to get Will on to discuss it and talk about it. This is his area that uh, he's been covering for a while, talking about the Internet, about all kinds of uh, Internet policies, uh, Section 230, uh, everything related to online social media. So, Will, thanks so much for taking your time to be on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, get into this. This is a case, Missouri v. Biden. 
Um, from what I saw of MAGA World, they were very excited by this. Uh, if you could just kind of explain uh, top level exactly what this bill does, uh, what the bill or bill <laughs> see this is I'm in legislative mode. Uh, what the actual judge said, what this injunction means, and uh, then you can perhaps give your own little spin as to the analysis of it. Sure. So this case is a lawsuit against the Biden administration brought by the states of Louisiana and Missouri, alleging that the administration improperly pushed, compelled, persuaded um, social media platforms to remove COVID skeptical and other controversial speech in 2021. Um, this, as, as you note, is a preliminary injunction. It's not a final solution to any of this, and I think some folks following it online have gotten a little ahead of themselves there, but it is very important to see courts taking these kinds of claims seriously, appreciating that government pressure, whether it's an outright threat or not, can still pose a threat to people's First Amendment rights, ability to express themselves, uh, that by leaning on intermediaries, you can alter what people can and can't say. And so that recognition is important, um, but this is a preliminary injunction. There'll be a merits ruling later on. And even this injunction itself, while on its face quite broad, illustrates how hard it is to draw clear, specific lines between the government informing platforms of something and exerting improper, unconstitutional pressure. And from what we see of this, this will prohibit um, various agencies of the government, including the Biden administration. There are a certain number of named individuals, departments and such. Uh, they will be prohibited from contacting social media companies for the purpose of essentially trying to uh, pressure them to take down a post. Uh, of course, there is an, accept an exemption if it relates to something like national security, an ongoing criminal procedure, etc. Um, for this, you know, a lot of people are on either side. I, I saw um, Matt Welch of Reason was on CNN, and uh, a lot of the uh, the journalists there on the panel were it's like, oh, well, this is just a travesty. You know, there's so much disinformation that will run rampant. Uh, tell me, Mr. Duffield, do you feel that the disinformation will run rampant now that uh, Biden administration cannot uh, reach out to the social medias and, and tell them to uh, perhaps take down some posts? I, I don't think jawboned pressure is an especially effective remedy to, to disinformation or misinformation. Um, you know, one, even though it can be a threat to individual speakers who, who are taken down, when you think about the scale of a problem like people getting things wrong on the internet or even maliciously spreading wrong information, it's much, much too big for an ad hoc system of emailed complaints from the State Department, the FBI, the White House to really tackle. Uh, so first off, it, it's never going to be a good solution to disinformation. And in, in many ways, it's designed or will inevitably uh, focus on kind of high profile things that upset the administration, but aren't necessarily the most false or most viral claims going around online. And secondly, just knowing that this is happening behind the scenes, but not being able to know 
when your, your speech is, is affected, whose speech has been affected, I think gives a lot of cover to those who spread myths or disinfo and platforms crack down on them. And they can say, look, there's a conspiracy against me. I'm being censored perhaps by the government. And no one can really say otherwise. So it contributes to a general climate of distrust um, while doing far too little in terms of actual prompted removals, even if you were to agree with them, even if they were to be uh, the, the right calls um, to actually change the problem or fix it. So not at all. And, <laughs> yeah. And like so much of uh, what we see out of this administration, uh, there's been a lot of calls to, well, ultimately Congress should fix this. And I will point over our listeners, and I'll include this in the show notes. Uh, you have a, a post up at uh, Cato at Liberty, Judge Blocks Job Owning, question mark. And uh, you, you give a, a very good analysis of this as well, because, again, this is not a, a black or white. It's not a, a full-scale permanent solution. This is a temporary injunction. And one, one point that you make that I have not seen made elsewhere is about disclosure, uh, wherein we learn what are those government requests to various social media accounts, uh, social media services, because I think that would be very important. We have it, and we've seen some of the, the companies like Apple as an example to where when they get requests from law enforcement, you know, they have a little database and they can say we've re received X number of warrants. Uh, but you're, you're stating that disclosure of those uh, sort of government requests, which were once informal, perhaps would be a better way to... Uh, attack this rather than just a, a blanket prohibition. Yes, and unlike the kind of year-end reviews that platforms have released, you really want the content of these government messages so you can decide on a case-by-case -case basis, was this appropriate or not. A disclosure-based solution is really a product of the difficulty we see in drawing clear workable lines in this injunction. On one hand, in the top half, you have a laundry list of prohibitions. You can't meet for purposes of encouraging removals, changing content policies, complaining about particular accounts or speakers. But on the other hand, you have exemptions for informing platforms about electoral misinformation or election interference attempts. And that exception can swallow the entirety of the New York Post, Twitter, Hunter Biden story fracas. Um, what are the government warnings that seem to prompt their removal of that story, but notification about the potential of election interference? And so drawing any singular sort of general line here um, is, is very difficult. And in the face of not being able to do that in order to guide a, a prohibition, um, the, the best alternative is really disclosure. Just putting that content front and center, um, the government publishing it on a regular basis, such that users, if they've been censored, if their, their speech has been removed after they were were implicated in a particular government request have a much easier time suing in, in that particular case. But more broadly, on the margin, there are many requests, complaints, that government officials simply won't send if they know that they're going to be public. And so you hope that on the margin, 
the less appropriate requests just, just don't get made. The mafioso language that we saw from some in the White House doesn't get used, and you have a, a better environment. But that's the sort of thing that will take an act of Congress. And I've seen from a comment from some of the uh, groups that do represent some of the tech companies uh, that this will actually do something with Section 230 liabilities. It could actually change the metric. It could make social media companies more liable. Do you kind of agree with that? Do you see that there's an opening for the changing of Section 230? I don't know if they were intonating that from the judge's comments or just generally it's the legal lines that are... And look, I'm no lawyer, but I, I don't know if that's something that, that you read out of this. Um, so... Certainly not on any any disclosure side. I'm working on a, a model bill at the moment that will not touch Section 230. As far as this injunction, um, I don't see it affecting Section 230 as, as written. You know, it's an injunction. It doesn't directly involve CDA 230. However, um, when the the line of jurisprudence that the court has taken up here and the way that the court has used existing precedent really expanded it in a way makes it more likely that at merits platforms may be treated as state actors and that a remedy may fall on them rather than solely on government to get into the weeds a little there are two Supreme Court cases that deal with jawboning or government informal pressure. Um, there's Bantam Books v. Sullivan, a case which drew a line at explicit threats. The threat doesn't have to be acted upon, but if the government makes an explicit threat, then that's inappropriate, that's unconstitutional, can have that. The other, Blum v. Uretsky, creates a sort of two-part test, first asking whether the government offered significant encouragement for the removal or activity, and then asking whether the, the activity or decision can be viewed, in essence, as that of the states rather than the private platforms. And here, in this injunction, the judge seems to have mostly relied on the first part of that Blum test, asking just whether there was significant encouragement and finding lots of evidence thereof. But ultimately, when you're looking at digital content moderation, where the platforms are making lots of decisions all the time, determining whether or not they would have made a call differently in the absence of some general government statement is extremely difficult, if not impossible. And so the Bantam Books test is ultimately a better fit for this online space and causes us or causes courts to focus on coercive, threatening speech rather than platform actions, which may set up better remedies that focus on government rather than tying platforms' hands. I see there. Okay. I think that's a very important context for a lot of that because, again, these it's not just a judge who's going willy-nilly or has, has been termed in the media that he's just a Trump judge. 
you know, he actually has to pull from some of these other uh, decisions. So sort of in closing of this and looking at what this means for sort of the future of, of freedom of speech online and the role of, of government in attempting to try to have some rails, you know, is it what will be the ultimate impact, you think, of this injunction or the case itself? Yeah, I I can ultimately see this case improving things on the margin, but I think coming up with a workable judicial remedy here is going to be very difficult. In many ways, this is it's a valuable watershed case, but the aspects which make it big and attention-grabbing also make it much harder to come up with a viable remedy because you're talking about government action across multiple agencies, many different personnel involved over several years, and in many cases on the basis of a crisis which is now sort of past. But I think the, the best that can come of this is just that it will draw a tremendous amount of ongoing attention to this problem. It's already sort of broken it open as an issue uh, to go to that CNN Welch interview the other day, you wouldn't be having that in, in the absence of a ruling like this. And I think it'll light more of a fire under Congress to come up with some kind of solution, especially if it becomes clear through the course of this case that the judiciary just isn't the best or most thoughtful vehicle for coming up with a comprehensive solution to this. Uh, so best case, this juices interest in perhaps a disclosure-based solution uh, model bill about which will be released later this this summer. Um, All right. So keep keep your eyes peeled for that. Definitely will. All right. We've been speaking with Will Duffield. You can find him on the tweeters over there, Will underscore Duffield of the Cato Institute. Will, thanks so much for your analysis. Very helpful for our listeners and uh, wish you the best of luck. Hope to have you back on soon. Thanks for having me. I'll be back about that bill. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. You just heard our interview there with Will Duffield of Cato Institute. He's a very uh, astute uh, follower of, of many of the different legal regimes around the Internet and policy. Uh, a lot of Internet things that are happening all at one time. We've talked about in the beginning of the program, Bill C-18 in Canada and the impact on not just media organizations, but also media consumers and people who use social media things. Um, David, you had mentioned in the first segment that um, this would apply also on threads. Have you been mm-hmm. enjoying the threads experience? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I just don't. Uh, I mean, maybe I will. Um, it just kind of seems like a like a. a like a more simple version of Twitter. Um, and it's more or less all the same content. I will say, here is hypocrisy at its finest. So you have the publishers saying that Meta, Facebook, is stealing their content and that they have to pay. So naturally, one would assume with the launch of threads that the publishers would not post or create accounts on threads. Why would you create a new account for a company to steal from you. But they all did. Toronto Star has a Threads account. All the Post Media has a Threads account. I think the Globe and Mail has a Threads account. And so it's like, wait a second. 
they were stealing from you to the point where you needed to get the government involved, and yet you're voluntarily joining their new platform for, for them to steal from you in another way. And I think that is, like, as soon as they joined Threads, I think the argument is gone. Because they had, it wasn't like, well, you know, we can't leave Facebook because we're, it's so built in and, like, we've, uh, it's so built in and, and it's like, it would be hard to decouple from Facebook. I could understand that argument, but to start again on threads is just like, uh, okay, you guys are full of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's been interesting. It, it is a very brand friendly uh, space thus far. So uh, I just I just went on a second ago, David, to repost um, what you the article that you put up. So I'm doing my my duty. Uh, it's hard because now a lot of people have social media fatigue. You know, you're you're posting on various different things. Um, the limitation of Instagram was yes, you had pictures and video, but you couldn't do links very well. You couldn't really just do text only things. Threads kind of solves this, and I don't know what they're at now, like 150 million downloads. Which is wild because it's not a single European, since uh, it's not available on European platforms because of oh that policy. So uh, there's more uh, policies have consequences. Coming back right to it, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's somewhat interesting. At least on on my feed that I see, it's just a lot of the same Instagram people because obviously it's yeah. connected and a lot of that data. And uh, I, I, I have another about gripe. It. I have another gripe. Um, our housing minister just published an op-ed in the National Post. Good Actually, for him. Yes, I wanted to mention yeah. this. Let me let me pull up exactly the uh, ex- expletive yeah. that you shared. Yeah. So essentially, for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, he published an op-ed saying, "Don't blame municipal leaders for the housing crisis." And his quote is, now is the time for solutions, not political theater. While Pierre Polyev and the conservatives are focused on cuts and far-right rhetoric, we are focused on one thing, bringing everyone to the table to get affordable homes Canadians need built now. And uh, my response tweet to that was, reprimand anyone who told you to think this and fire immediately whoever told you to write this because I don't think you could have published anything more tone-deaf and factually incorrect in the current crisis on the cusp of the Bank of Canada increasing rates by another quarter percent and driving very variable rate mortgage holders literally to the brink. You're going to say don't blame the municipal. Don't blame the NIMBYs <laughs> is essentially the op-ed. What's, uh, what's interesting about it, too, is, again, you see this a lot with particularly Canadian uh, politics. You know, you have the people in power, you know, who have power, who have the levers of power, concentrating and just saying, well, look what these guys are doing. So it says here, while Pierre uh, Poiliev and the conservatives, are f- they're focused on cuts and far-right rhetoric. We're focused on bringing everyone to the table. Well, you actually have power. Pierre Poiliev has, like, a couple of minutes a week he can ask questions in the parliament and you actually have power that disseminates policy so not not just that you have it now you had a majority government oh you've had it for years (laughs) for eight years like if this was like just after the election in 2015 and it was like okay guys like 
We've inherited this big problem. But you don't get to play that card anymore. It's, it's been your show for almost a decade. You've been running the show, and uh, prices have been going up. There's a lot of finagling of different financial details. Uh, a lot of talk in Canada about the uh, interest rates being uh, lifted once more. Uh, Bank of Canada. And I, I did see that uh, Franco Terenzano, who's over there at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, they had a, a blistering um, reveal what is it, $20 million in bonuses to uh, employees at the Bank of Canada uh, in 2022. <laughs> Pretty wild. And since uh, COVID, since 2020, apparently it's been uh, bonuses and pay raises to the tune of $71 million. Yeah, not a good look. Not a good look. Um... Do you think we can get in in on this somehow? Can we get a raise through the Bank of Canada? Yeah, like how do we get, how do we get in on the money train? Oh man! Because apparently it's just flying out of Ottawa. So like, what do we got to do? Yeah, that would is a very good question. I I think the office space would be very nice. You know, just uh, it's like Pierre Poilievre talked about the family camping out in the former headquarters of the CBC, I, I can only imagine the Bank of Canada, how spacious uh, the room would be. I think, David, you could build three properties inside and uh, be very well oh, off. I'd love that. Imagine, <laughs> imagine like an apartment is Tiff Macklem's former office. <laughs> oh, that'd be it's great. It's probably big enough. It's probably big enough. I know, that'd be excellent. It's like, well, here's where Mark Carney decided X. I'm like, well, that's where I'm putting my desk, and I will put my studio, and uh, we'll we'll have a ball here. At the Bank of Canada, uh, yeah, so things are continuing there. Uh, flipping through some of the other wires, I've seen um, there's apparently a, uh agency demand for documents about open AI. In the U.S., um, investigating whether "quote Chat GPT" uh, Chat GPT has harmed consumers. How would that be possible? <laughs> I don't know. It's just launched. Um, I, I listen that would to be like has Google. That would be like has Google harmed consumers. Mister Google, have you harmed consumers? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I listen to a uh, journal. Uh, podcast uh, that's of the Wall Street Journal and Gimlet. I think, David, it's one of our faves. Um, they had one with uh, one of the moderators um, of OpenAI because apparently they hired this company in Kenya to do a lot of the model training, uh, particularly for bad words and things to filter out and, you know, just just stuff that, that was a bit inflammatory. And uh, the amount of stuff that this these guys were seeing and the filters that they were building up, like... <laughs> Apparently uh, they were all depressed. Yeah, depressed, a bit traumatized, and then like uh, that, that company just stopped working with them. But yeah, it's true. And OpenAI has, from the very beginning, really much placated to the rules that don't even exist yet. You know, they have installed a lot of filters. And in the beginning, if you remember, you know, you asked it a question about climate change or about politics generally or inflation. Where does inflation come from? Uh, you get a very standard sort of government-approved answer. Yeah. And yeah, well, I mean, we I ran a test the other day on the Uyghur genocide, and to see what their response would be. Oh, was it, a, it was, was it a pro genocide tool or was it anti genocide this no, time? No, it was just kind of very soft. Like, this is what's been reported. This is what the 
Chinese have claimed they're doing to stop out terrorism. And then there's like a little small thing. It's like, hey, I'm in, I'm here. I'm being oppressed. It's like the guy doing the filter. You know, he included a coat. Help me! I'm a Uyghur guy. Um, yeah, well, it's like literally. Like, I mean, there's literally video evidence of people being loaded up to tra- in, into trains. I don't think there's. I don't think there was any room for hedging your response on that. Do you remember I this? I wouldn't um, respect that response from a person. Do you, I don't know if it was an urban legend or not, um, or if it was a fake news story, but there was one about a woman who bought a shirt, and inside the shirt was a little message that was scribbled, and it was from someone working in the factory who made the shirt, and how terrible the conditions were. Do you remember that story? Mm, I do. I don't know whether it was factual. Yeah, it was like, it seemed like a kind of hoax. But, you know, let's imagine it was real. Um, very interesting because you know a lot of the iPhones are still you know assembled in China, um, so I can only imagine what, what kind of messages they they'd put in, in part into that, you know, before they ship them out the door. Uh, but this <laughs> is kind of what happens. <laughs> Try to go download an app. Something happens. But this is kind of what happens when you have international supply chains and um, yeah. factories on different continents and yeah. I mean, there were a couple of Canadian companies that were just implicated in. Uh, Chinese forced labor, Nike Canada, and uh, a gold mine. Both have kind of have said that they've cut ties. Well, Nike has said they cut ties with the supplier in one case, and uh, the gold company says we don't have any control over the mine. Oh, it's all contractors. <laughs> which, yeah, which is a pretty tough response to be like, well, they're literally using people forced to be there against their will. That's not. Um, that's not a great response. <laughs> you know, related to this, I've uh, there's because there's a lot of you know questions about climate, and obviously it's been a very warm summer, um, which you know has been used a lot in news stories and stuff. Uh, but I've seen a lot more videos of the cobalt mines, and a lot of cobalt is used for solar panels and a lot of other uh, energy friendly quotes, uh, energy friendly uh, technologies. Uh, these things are pretty harrowing, you know, and I think there's. There's a, David, there was that piece that we wrote about the forestry sector and, uh, you know, the idea that there are more emissions that come from uh, forestry as an industry than all of the oil sands in Canada. It's pretty ridiculous uh, because they're looking at the whole thing and all. Well, just imagine, you know, your electric vehicle and just how much work had to be mined out of the ground, how much labor, you know, for that versus your normal, you know, Chevy Silverado. I don't really know, but it's at least an interesting question to ask. Let's be consistent, folks. Well, one, consistent, and two, display all of the facts so that at least it is understood. Like, at the end of the day, I think it would still be a marginal net benefit for the environment. But it doesn't mean that if everyone had a Tesla tomorrow and we got rid of gas-powered cars, um, that all of a sudden our climate problems would be solved. And I think sometimes from a regulatory perspective, some of the folks who push for like the mandates, they think that, well, the the issue with climate change is just that we have too many vehicles that are gas powered. And it's like, oh, that is, that is not, um, that is not the, the issue here. Um, but, um, I do, uh, I do like that, uh, Douglas Ford is is pushing nuclear in Ontario, 
um, which is a real game changer in terms of the whole electricity grid. Do we have enough power to uh, to make this feasible uh, in the future? And so they're pushing nuclear uh, big, which uh, is a good move. I'm, I'm super pleased with that as an Ontarian, but also so, as someone who cares about the environment. There you go. There's important points there about uh, those great alternative technologies that in some places are illegal or we're not building enough. Um, so good to know about that. Uh, Dave, we're closing out the program here. Um, I'm going to be kind of crisscrossing a bit for the next couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll find some uh, solutions for doing the program. Um, heading out to the lake next week, and then I'll be in Orlando uh, two weeks after that for a conference. So I'll be Ooh, sweltering uh, in under the shade of Mickey Mouse. Uh, but nothing like the middle of summer in Florida. That's yeah, a heat that's gonna get you. <laughs> tell me about it. Uh, I've lived it. I've lived it. Might have to get myself, uh, you know, some some alligator wings. Uh, but we'll see. We'll talk about that <laughs> in the next couple of weeks. Thank you guys for tuning in to Consumer Choice Radio. We got much more to come. Um, also, subscribe on the podcast version if you can, and uh, talk to you soon. <laughs>